Welcome to By Any Means Necessary, your radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the SB8 bill or the heartbeat bill in Texas going into effect and what that will mean for reproductive justice. Also going to be talking about the corporate press's complicity in propagating the war state and also going to be honing in on the housing struggle happening right now among students at Howard University. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. Before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, throughout the history of patriarchal white supremacist oppression in this country, deputizing citizens to carry out the heinous violence of the state is a common theme. Whether it's the cops standing by and doing nothing while a mob breaks into the jailhouse and drags someone out to be lynched, or they stand off to the side and allow a white mob to beat black and other citizens of color mercilessly, or they join in the assault on black communities using planes and bombs to destroy them, or they provide them legal cover in the courts by absolving the perpetrators of their crimes, the foot soldiers of white supremacist patriarchy in this country have always been rewarded for doing the dirty work of their puppet masters. In the past, the reward for the foot soldiers of white supremacist patriarchy has been the feeling of being accepted by the capitalist class that directed them, believing that they could have a piece of that class's riches if they just did enough of their bidding, or the foot soldiers were allowed to keep the spoils of their violent rampages, the possessions they coveted that were owned by people they were told didn't deserve them, told this by the fascist capitalist overlords who twisted the knife of jealousy in the minds of poor white people to convince them that they had a right to hard-earned possessions and fairly gained property of other folks, indigenous black immigrant people. They were given positions on community or city councils. They were regarded as heroes in their neighborhoods. They were seen as the standard bearers and the model for American values, the example of how a true American, a true patriot, protects their family, their neighborhood, their way of life from the terrifying drumbeat of societal change. But that was in the past. Now the white supremacist patriarchal legislature of Texas It's just giving its foot soldiers cash. The new abortion ban, SB8, in Texas, not only makes it illegal for anyone to access an abortion after six weeks when most women don't even know they're pregnant and a fetus's heart usually hasn't even fully formed, so no heartbeat can be detected, but the bill deputizes the virulent anti-choice mob to do the dirty work of the white supremacist patriarchal state. The way this law works is that anyone who suspects someone, anyone, of aiding and abetting someone of getting an abortion can sue that person who they believe aided and abetted the person seeking the procedure. And it's as vague and expansive as you think it is. Some random person can sue the taxi cab or rideshare driver who drops a woman off at a clinic. Some random person can sue the friend who lets someone who came from a procedure stay at their house. Some random person can sue the partner who went to the clinic to support someone through the procedure. Clinic defenders who protect patients from the already vicious anti-choice protesters 
by safely escorting women into the clinics, they can be sued. Basically, anyone who suspects anyone else of helping someone obtain an abortion can sue them for practically any reason and call it aiding and abetting an abortion. And if the lawsuit is successful, then the state gives the person who brought the lawsuit $10,000. Yes, the white supremacist patriarchal Texas legislature has, in effect, put a bounty on women exercising their right to reproductive freedom. But I want to make it clear that when I'm talking about white supremacist patriarchy deputizing its foot soldiers to do its dirty work, denying women the right to bodily autonomy in Texas, I'm not just talking about white men. Let's not forget that conservative white women have been just as vehemently opposed to abortion as conservative white men are. And yes, there are even a few black folks who are conservative who get sprinkled in right along with them. But when I talk about white supremacist patriarchy, don't think I'm making white women victims here. No, the politically conservative and religiously conservative white women who are pro-life and support this bill are just as guilty as the men who crafted it. And they are just as guilty of the hypocrisy of those men because when the babies they insist must be born are here, if the mothers are unmarried, then she's shamed by those women. If she and her partner are poor, then they're deadbeats. And if the parents need help, some people screaming about being pro-life, a whole lot of them women, will take the child away before they would provide food, housing, health care, a job that pays a decent wage, and child care to improve that child's life and the lives of the parents. When we continue this fight, against the white supremacist patriarchy attacking the right to bodily autonomy for women, let's not leave out the white women who are also complicit and who will undoubtedly be going after some of the bounty being offered. Follow Lukeman Nation on patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're keeping the movement moving on, as they say, and we're now happy to be joined by Anna Santoyo, a writer for Breaking the Change magazine, which you can check out at BreakingTheChainsMag.org. Anna, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Anna, this week, uh, a Texas law called SB8 went into effect, uh, a legislative move that stands to deal a serious blow to abortion rights and reproductive justice in the state of Texas. And I think also there is some ripple effects for the country as well. Now, this is also known as the heartbeat bill, and it requires providers to check for fetal heartbeat before performing an abortion. And if a heartbeat is detected, they are banned from carrying through the procedure. And of course, there are uh, complications here, uh, particularly around the timing of when most women find out that they are pregnant, which seems to be a part of the calculus of this bill in general. And so on I was hoping you could sort of break down SB8, just what it means and what makes it different from similar pieces that we see in other states. Yeah. um, So SB8, you're right, also known as another heartbeat bill, um, 
will make it nearly impossible to access abortion in Texas. Um, as you said, many women um, or many people don't know that they're pregnant before uh, six weeks. In fact, 85% of people that seek abortion do so after six weeks. Um, this is one of the many abortion attacks um, at this time in Mississippi. Justices are also um, going to uh, also rule in, uh, in the upcoming term about a 15-week abortion ban, and Mississippi has also asked to overturn Roe v. Wade. So this is very serious, and um, many states have attempted to enact the similar so-called heartbeat bills, but they, you know, are frequently prevented from doing so through lawsuits. And this is the first time um, the most extreme, definitely, um, bill that has gone or law that has gone into effect. And um, SB8, however, is unique in that it transfers the enforcement of restrictions over to private citizens rather than the government. So people are able to sue other providers. Um, anybody that's deemed um, deemed to help another person get an abortion, so that could be, you know, the person driving you to go get an abortion, or uh, the fam- a family member that's helping you um, pay for uh, an abortion. And in the article that I wrote for uh, Breaking the Chains magazine, um, I was able to speak to the founder of the Clinic Vest Project, um, which provides uh, training and vests and more for clinic escorts. And, you know, they would be deemed um, as somebody that's so aiding and abetting um, people getting an abortion. Um, so they're there to help, um, you know, get people into buildings safely. But what we see with this, this law is that, you know, it's actually, um, you know, exacerbating the harassment that people um, getting abortions face. So um, those that do, uh, you know, ha- help people, um that could be deemed as aiding and abetting, they can receive a bounty up to $10,000 as a reward um, and um, have their legal fees paid for. Um, so we're rewarding people that are blocking essential health care and abortion. And, it, you know, it seems to me that, you know, the way this bill was written, I, I, I feel like the legislatures realized the science didn't back up the heartbeat part of the bill. Because medical professionals make it clear that the heart isn't even fully formed Mm -hmm. at six weeks. A heartbeat usually is not even audible. Literally, if you put a stethoscope up to a woman's belly six weeks into her pregnancy, you wouldn't hear a heartbeat. So then the legislature decided, well, if that's true and we know that women get an abortion after six weeks, then what can we do to criminalize abortion without actually running up against challenging Roe versus Wade and literally making regular folks like deputizing them almost in a way by putting a bounty out on women who seek an abortion is the way they've done that? Yeah, um, so you're right. It is very hard. And I, and I want to clarify with like all of the heartbeat bills um Yes, it is hard to detect. Um, it's actually, you know, um, you know, doctors say that it's around six weeks that you can detect it. So if um, a person um, seeking an abortion goes in at five weeks and they hear a heartbeat, like they won't be able to get it. And um, the sonogram has to be done 24 hours before. Um, so, again, like all of these times um, that are being, you know, put in place for this, um, 
you know, speak to the resources and access to safe abortion providers um, lacking um, as time progresses in a pregnancy. Um, you know, coupled with the heartbeat bill, this would make it impossible for people to access abortion in Texas and will inevitably force um, people to, you know, travel great distances um, to receive the necessary care or access safe um, or I'm sorry, access less safe underground services. So abortions um, will happen regardless of this law, right? And what they are doing is actually taking away the legality and safety of it, which will kill women and all those seeking abortion care. Absolutely. I think that's important to note, Anna, that this is sort of an outright attack on the safety and health of women, uh, particularly pregnant women. You know what I mean? And, And I'm wondering, Anna, about the real motivation of the attack on abortion rights and reproductive justice in the United States and how it factors into the exploitation of women under capitalism and how women are oppressed under this system. Because, you know, the line that we always hear typically, it's always kind of a moralistic um, evangelical uh, right wing religious line about supposedly being pro-life and, and, and all these sorts of things. And so it gives a supposedly divine veneer to attacking women's sort of a bodily autonomy in this way and to attack their, frankly, their human rights in this way. But what do you think sort of the real reasoning and the sort of real motivations behind these politics are because the oppression of women is a key and central aspect of how capitalist exploitation maneuvers. And as such, it seems that attacking these rights in a way is sort of an important aspect of that effort. Yeah, um, you know, I agree with you. I mean, it it points to, um, you know, the chipping away of, um, you know, what you mentioned of uh, women's rights or anybody seeking um, an abortion um, and other reproductive justice that um, people are organizing and fighting for. Um, but yeah, you know, last night as well, um, the Supreme Court allowed SBA to remain in effect. They had an emergency request to block the law um, and all that was filed and it was upheld again. Um, you know, the, the, um, unelected group of people, um, we know they can act quickly. Uh, When the Supreme Court met overnight to end the CDC eviction moratorium, they proved that they will and can act quickly in the interest of landlords, in the interest of, you know, capital in this country. So um, last night when uh, the Supreme Court had the chance to block the Texas abortion ban and defend women's rights and defend anybody seeking abortion care, they did nothing. And, you know, that points out to that we really need a new system that is in the interest of working class and poor people that are fighting back for their rights. And, you know, just in case people are wondering, Anna, about the viability of lawsuits that people would be encouraged to bring against anyone who aids and abets uh, women who are seeking an abortion, what what's the climate like in the courtroom, in the legal system in Texas is it likely that uh, these kinds of lawsuits would even make it? Or is it like we suspect it is in Texas? There are a lot of conservative judges who are pretty much in on this whole gambit to circumvent Roe versus Wade in an effort to completely overturn it. 
Yeah, you know, I, I was wondering the same thing. It's, it's a little bit hard to tell right now, but I, I would assume, you know, that, that it will be. Um, you know, um, even though, like, Roe v. Wade, um, you know, won in 1973 the decision that established the constitutional right to abortion with SB 8, um, you know, seeing that this was upheld, um, it, it's a, it's, it'll be really you know, crazy how it plays out. I think um, in light of SB8, anti-abortion groups launched uh, new websites um, for pro-life whistleblowers to anonymously submit tips on anyone that they suspect was seeking an abortion. And um, the Texas bounty hunt, um, you know, adds again, you know, to that climate of harassment against those seeking abortion care. And also the support system of anybody seeking abortion care with with that bounty aspect. Yeah, I mean, it really is insane just how every aspect in every level of women trying to access this health care, which is what it is, this attack on even the people trying to help women access this health care, I mean, I think just shows just how deep and how far this system is willing to go to keep people from essential resources. And you mentioned a moment ago, Anna, about, you know, uh, the need for a new system where these kinds of rights are protected. And I mean, when, when we talk about building a movement, and I feel like this shows how important it is to really highlight women's issues and women's liberation within that broader movement. Because if we look at other issues happening right now, other contradictions of the capitalist system, like, say, the possible tsunami of evictions that could be on its way after the eviction moratorium was blocked by the Supreme Court. I mean, it seems to me that, you know, women and children stand to really face the brunt of that when we look at the pandemic and the people who are often tasked with care both inside and outside of the home. We're talking about something that impacts women. And I mean, even before the pandemic, if we look at what the working class experiences in terms of exploitation and lower levels of pay, not to mention the kind of, you know, day to day du jour uh, uh, harassment and things like that being faced inside the workplace. I mean, women shoulder so much of the brunt of uh, capital exploitation in this country. And I think that that certainly uh, breaks down among racial lines as well, although it is a general problem. And it's just clear, Anna, that when a movement addresses itself to capitalism and begins to ask serious questions about what kind of humanity-centered system should be brought about, then the question of women uh, becomes, I think, crucially important there. Yeah, I think you're you're right. I think working class and oppressed women have been bearing the brunt of the combined COVID and economic crisis in the United States. Um, last last uh, December, it was cited that uh, the fourteen I'm sorry, uh, one hundred forty thousand thousand jobs lost in December were all women. Um, so it is bearing the brunt of, of these crises. And um, I think speaking to, um, you know, um, abortion in that context, um, you know, there was a time during the pandemic that abortions um, were deemed as elective and not essential procedures. So there was another time that, you know, that was, that was, um, you know, because of the lack of PPE and um, all of these things, but, you know, that, <laughs> 
it, it of course, was just like an opportunity for the right wing to continually attack um, abortion rights. And they'll do it um, um, at the expense of working class and oppressed women um, that, like you said, are bearing the brunt of this crisis. Yeah. And, you know, on that note of women, working class, poor and oppressed women bearing the brunt of these converging crises, I, I think I can't help but, you know, point out that on the other end of the spectrum, Anna, you know, upper class, conservative, politically conservative and, and religiously conservative, politically active women are also on the other end of the spectrum, if not driving these kinds of bills, but certainly very, very supportive of them. You know, what's your what's your perspective on that part? of this issue that a lot of the people involved in denying poor women the right to bodily autonomy are other women. Yeah, you know, it, it really it really baffles me that that, that is the case, um, you know, as these these laws do, um, you know, kind of having that that class consciousness is really important for the movement um, that is fighting back um, to defend Roe v. Wade and any ban that comes forward. And I think many times, you know, we're, you know, put in that position, um, you know, I'm a Latina woman and um, I got two abortions in 2019. And I was really, you know, had to think about, you know, the aspects of that. And it was really, um, you know, it, it's kind of daunting thinking about like these uh Spaces sometimes, but I know that a multinational um, independent movement um, and a militant movement in the streets can really challenge um, the current campaigns, bans, and laws restricting reproductive justice. Yeah, I think so. And I think that when you talk about the need of an independent movement, on that is centrally important because we see that the political mainstream refuses, you know, to fight this fight as intensely as it should. And Jackie, th that point you made about women organizing against the interests of women is precisely why, as we've been discussing, class consciousness is so important. And I'm reminded of uh, Kwame Torre, who was fond of telling us that capitalism doesn't just seek to exploit your labor. It also wants to confound your thinking. So all of us generally are so inundated with this capitalist thinking that we've been submerged in for our entire lives, that we can actually become agents of the oppression of our own people and not even know it, really. You don't think of it as uh, oppression. And I feel like we can show example of this amongst any number of oppressed groups. And see, this is the trick of capitalism to where you you can be an outright reactionary but are made to feel that you're actually doing something that is good, that is morally correct, and that's something that signals, quote unquote, progress. Well, it may be progress, but progress for who? And so I think we have to sort of understand all the different interconnected ways that uh, these different forms of oppression and exploitation manifest and see that in the final analysis, it is the capitalist system that is at the root of it all. And therefore, a movement has to address itself to that system and what is to be done to bring about a new one. But with that, we want to thank you so much, Anna, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moving to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary.
Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the media response to the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Gareth Porter, investigative historian and journalist and the co-author of The CIA Insider's Guide to the Iran Crisis, From CIA Coup to the Brink of War. Gareth, thanks so much for joining us. Yes, indeed. This is Well, that's a fact, Gareth, uh, because, you know, after 40 years of invasion, regime change and bloody war, uh, the Biden-Harris administration has carried out a long overdue withdrawal of the U.S. military from Afghanistan. And this was not well received by much of the corporate owned press uh, that criticized Biden for the pullout and seemed to echo the frustrations and desires of the U.S. military leadership that wanted to remain in Afghanistan indefinitely. And you recently published a piece about this, Gareth, on the gray zone in a piece called Afghanistan Collapse Reveals Beltway Media's Loyalty to Permanent War State. And so I was hoping you could help us understand what does the corporate press response to the withdrawal sort of reveal about the relationship between the media and the military and why we see some of the narratives that we see. Yes, indeed. This is, this is a very important issue that does not get very much attention at all. And it really does uh, deserve a lot of scrutiny from uh, you know, your listeners and the entire public in the United States, because it's, it's a fact that the, uh, the corporate media uh, are, are really almost slavishly devoted to the interests of the war state, the the military establishments, the the Pentagon in particular, of course. Uh, And they have historically done the same thing for many decades now. And I've been following this, actually, as as you mentioned, I'm a historian as well as a journalist. And it has been a very significant theme in my own uh, experience in following the, the American wars uh, ever since Vietnam, uh, that, that the media has been totally on the side of the people who made the war, and uh, they have not been happy about ending it, uh, of course, and they have blamed, uh, you know, the, the, uh, in, in this case, they had an opportunity, uh, clearly the, an opportunity to blame the, the problem on Biden. Because of the chaos that reigned uh, in Afghanistan, in, in Kabul, at the airport and around it, uh, and, and which, you know, obviously produced such horrible scenes of, uh, of anguish and even uh, uh, some violence, um, and, and therefore sort of played into the hands of the, the media who made that the, the sort of entree into their argument, which was essentially that um, that all this happened because of Biden's refusal to listen to his generals, to listen to the advice of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, as well as the Secretary of Defense, uh, Lloyd Austin, who had told Biden uh, last April, and this was a matter of public record, it wasn't hidden, that, um, that they wanted to have a, 
uh, a more or less permanent U.S. military presence in Afghanistan of 3,500 to 4,000 troops. And uh, this would be for the purpose of, quote, counterterrorism, unquote. Uh, now, you know, of course, that that is the case because there would be no there would be no way to use it uh, in a war and, and without that be becoming an obvious infraction of the understanding. But uh, but but we'll talk about counterterrorism in a little bit. Um, the the idea here that the media pervade was that that Biden uh, was the cause of all this enormous suffering of of Afghans who wanted to get out because he did not do what the what the generals wanted him to do. And of course, this is a completely phony assumption, which doesn't hold up under scrutiny. Uh, and, and I think that's what we can talk about in more detail in, in a few moments. Yeah, I think we definitely should, Gareth, because, you know, the, the disingenuousness of uh, the media's attempts at salvaging the reputation of the military, because that's Really what it seems like, you know, the, the media is is very upset that the military is being, you know, besmirched or or, or that they're they're, you know, being blamed for this terribly chaotic and, and deadly withdrawal that clearly was not planned uh, the way it it had plenty of time to be planned. But, you know, even The Washington Post, as you point out in your article, uh, went so far as to blame the Afghan catastrophe on an overemphasis of democratic values. And I'm not sure what that means, but they also ignore the alliance between the U.S. military and despotic warlords that drove local support for the Taliban. People didn't like the warlords that the U.S. military were working with. So, I mean, what what is going on with with this strange narrative that uh, mainstream media is trying to spin here? This this is perhaps the most uh, amusing in its own way. Of course, it's not. It's very serious, and it isn't truly amusing. But uh, but in a sense, on the surface, it is amusing effort to, uh, as you say, uh, uh, de- uh, defend the the uh, uh, interests. And the uh, the legacy of the U.S. military leadership by suggesting that uh, that that the United States uh, made a mistake in Afghanistan, uh, not by fighting a war and the generals, you know, lying to the American people year after year that things were going well uh, and that we were going to win. Uh, all the time, you know, knowing that, in fact, uh, all of the signs indicated that the U.S. was doing terribly, it was losing the, the people of Afghanistan, uh, that, that, in fact, that the problem was that, from the point of view of these uh, defenders, and specifically, in this case, it's uh, uh, Flournoy, uh, Michelle Flournoy, who was, during the Obama administration, the primary uh, civilian policymaker with regard to the Afghanistan war. Um, and, and she's arguing uh, in this interview with The Washington Post that, as you say, the problem was, well, we were too, we were too tender-hearted. We were too, uh, trying too hard to uh, implement a, a war that would serve uh, d- democratic values. Well, I mean, that was, that's BS, of course, uh, from the start. I mean, they were never interested in democratic values. They never made any effort 
uh, at all uh, to install uh, uh, democratic institutions. They allied, as you indicated uh, in your intro, they allied from the very beginning of this war with these hated warlords. Uh, uh, These are the people who had militias of their own during the uh, the, the war against the Russians, against the Soviets in the 1980s, and then into the 1990s, they fought among themselves over control of the capital, Kabul, uh, still using their militias. And they were bloodthirsty. I mean, they, were, uh, they, they did not mind killing thousands of people by using uh, mass murder, or u- using weapons of mass destruction in the capital itself. In many cases, so and, and then they, you know, when they came back uh, under the protection of the U.S. military, and I cite a specific article in 2009 published by Reuters about uh, about um, a province in the south, uh, Kandahar province, where the U.S. troops had just returned and uh, drove the Taliban out of a district or, or more than one district, and behind the American troops came these, uh, the, these militias of the warlords, uh, these bandits and rapists, who immediately went to work robbing uh, everyone in sight that they could, uh, uh, stealing their wives, their daughters, and their preteen sons for sexual uh, enjoyment, rape, uh, and and then sometimes releasing them only if the farmers would pay them off. In other words, they were using them as ransom uh, for for ransom. Uh, so so this is the most heinous kind of grouping that you can imagine. And they would continue to do this because the Americans didn't lift a finger. They didn't do anything about it. Uh, they didn't end their the, the CIA payments to these warlords, which had begun at the beginning of, of the U.S. presence uh, in Afghanistan, they didn't make demands on them and say, if you don't stop this, you're finished. No, it, it went on year after year after year. And certainly Michelle Flournoy knew this perfectly well. So, so this was all a lie. Yeah, and I mean, you know, what all of that just reminds me of, Gareth, is that not only is the U.S. military's direct involvement in Afghanistan in terms of dropping bombs and boots on the ground, all of that is deeply devastating. But then all these other extenuating issues like their support for the warlords and turning an eye and looking away from rape and all these other abuses, things that in some cases, as you note, uh, put people in a position where they felt like they were forced to support the Taliban. And so, you know, when we look at the media's role in sort of propagating all of this, I mean, in the broadest sense, Gith, I mean, what do you think it means for a supposedly free press that's already under the influence of their billionaire owners, but who are also clearly tied in with the military industrial complex that wants to uh, uh, basically just have these conflicts and these wars Rage on forever. You know what I mean? Not out of any desire for, you know, uh, peace or or real resolution and things like that. But I mean, just out of a sheer domination. And I just feel like it's a poor commentary on a, a press apparatus that would project these sorts of messages. Yeah, we have we have a structural problem of of, as you have suggested, many, many decades of duration 
going back to the beginning of the Cold War. Uh, and, and I've been working on a book um, on the Cold War, reinterpreting what it was all about, how it happened, and why it went so long. Um, and uh, one of the things, that, the most fundamental thing that has, has jumped out at me from the data that I have found about the Cold War is that the media uh, support for the Cold Warriors in the Pentagon and the State Department, because the State Department played such a key role uh, earlier in the Cold War, uh, that, that was a, an absolutely crucial element in the ability of the Cold War interests to prevail year after year, decade after decade. Uh, so, so this is a problem that has been built into U.S. Uh, politics and policy for so long that it is extremely well entrenched. And, and to understand why the media has played that role is, is not a simple matter. I, mean, I think it's a multi-layered problem. I think the ownership of the media, of course, has um, you know interests that have have to do with financial interests that coincide with the uh, the war state, the, the permanent war state. I think that when you come down to the editors and the the reporters. They are dependent day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month on their sources within the Pentagon, within the military, within the National Security Council, and so forth. And so they are never going to uh, alienate their sources by publishing stories that really go against the fundamental interests of of those institutions. Uh, so, So you have a very complex set of of interests here that uh, interact to produce uh, this pattern that is really unvarying, and, and you can you can trace this back uh, in the case of all of our wars. Uh, every time there's a key turning point in a war, uh, you you have a space of uh, articles that come to the defense of the the uh, Pentagon and the military. Uh, this is an unvarying. Uh, attribute of of the uh, the media in this country, um, and and so you know we are up against a very big part of the ruling class. That's all there is to it. Yeah, I, I want to point out that the the hypocritical uh, nature of the U.S. media in regard to especially Afghanistan and 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 you know propping up the war state in general and being so cozy with the military i think is particularly glaring in the way they parrot this you know oh we need to stay in afghanistan to protect the women what about the women but you did mention michelle flornor earlier and the same media that's trotting out these headlines about oh what's going to happen to afghan women now they conveniently overlook the fact that Michelle Flournoy was the one who was in leadership, who relied on, who pushed these uh, relationships with these warlords who were causing so much damage and destruction and human suffering against women in Afghanistan. Well, yes. And and let me just expand. This is an extremely important point that is never discussed by the media, but 75% 75% or more of the women of Afghanistan are living, have lived, and continue to live in rural areas which have been subject to the depredations of these warlords 
and they're malicious. And that means that the preteen girls who want to go to school have been afraid that they would be abducted. This has happened over and over again. They've been abducted by the militias of these warlords and taken away uh, for sexual uh, pleasure uh, to, to rape them. And, and so uh, uncounted numbers of, of young uh, girls have stayed away from school in rural areas because of this. It's not simply the fact that the, that the Taliban don't want education for girls. Uh, it's, it's the effect of uh, the warlord effect, if you will. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Garrett, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're going to move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. But we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about housing issues facing the students of Howard University. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Erica, a senior political science major at Howard University. Erica, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're so glad that you are here to talk about this issue because, you know, as colleges across the country have opened, the first week of the fall semester has started. And at Howard University, there are already some challenges, Erica, as 38 cases of the coronavirus were reported during the first week of the semester, despite a vaccine mandate, only about 80 percent of the students have reported receiving their doses. Faculty members are worried that they'll be infected in their classrooms. And there was a recent protest that was carried on by students over what students have declared a housing crisis. Erica, what is going on with the issues on Howard's campus and give us some insight into what the students are facing right now. Yeah, so there's quite a few um, issues going on right now, um, one of them being prices. So the sit-out that we uh, held um, this past Friday was to highlight the, the fact that a lot of students are dealing with housing issues. Um, many juniors and seniors at Howard University were, some of them were sophomores or freshmen, um, when they first left Howard before COVID hit, oh, right when COVID hit. And now um, that they're juniors and seniors, many of them didn't realize that there would not be um, housing for them on campus if they needed it, which means they had to be pushed out into the broader D.C. and Maryland and Virginia areas. Um, people that you know live in the D.C. area or know anything about the D.C. area um, know that housing is very, very expensive, and um, students have to pay for housing as well when they don't have housing um, offered to them by the school. So as of now, mostly um, live on campus, some sophomores, but the juniors and seniors, there's not really housing there for them. And this is due to a lot of, you know, other um, housing from pre housing issues from previous generations at Howard, dealing with um, the leasing off of dorms or closing of dorms, and you know not 
not building enough dorms to replace what was was taken away. Yeah, and and the taking away of dorms, I I, I want to be clear on what that really means because as you said, this has been an ongoing issue at uh, Howard University. This was not just, you know, Howard University closing dorms for safety reasons. Right. This was for profit. Howard University was closing dorms and turning them over to developers for profit. And that's affected the students at, what is it, the storied historically black university in the country. Right. Um, So there have been times in the past when Howard has had issues financially and, you know, needed to um, generate some revenue to um, to help with the running and upkeep of the university. Some of the issues Howard has had, however, has have been to just, you know, mismanagement. Um, However, um, many dorms just in the past Six years have closed, and there haven't been enough. There hasn't been enough space to um, counter the potential um, of students needing to stay on campus. It's pretty well known that a lot of times the upperclassmen like to be off campus as they um, as they move up in their um, education at Howard. But with the fact that it's been increasingly and increasingly difficult to even pay for housing. Um, there should have been something in place to um, to rectify that situation if students did need housing. There were emergency um, housing instructions for students that that needed it that went out the day school started. By that point, many students who maybe knew that they weren't going to return because they couldn't afford housing, by that point, many students had decided to stay home and just try to come back another semester or maybe debated on whether they were coming back at all. And then there's other students who knew that they couldn't afford housing right now, one of which I know right now, a few of them are, you know, crashing on people's couches, trying to find, you know, somewhere just to stay uh, until they figure out their own housing situation. I've even heard reports of students like sleeping in their cars until they figure out, you know, what they can do about housing because they can't afford both tuition and housing. Well, and, and you know, Erica, I, I'm a HBCU graduate myself. I went to FAMU and, and I mean, I graduated about a, a decade ago, but I saw similar issues even then around housing. And and I mean, you know, the, the conditions that you describe students having to experience simply because of what appears to be like inaction and lack of preparation on the part of the university is just ridiculous. And, and I mean, I, I have to ask, and I'm sure you all have as well. Why would the university knowing that there was this shortage? I mean, why weren't there more uh, preparations? Why weren't there some kind of arrangements made? I mean, somehow, some way, someone must have known that what you're describing would be the case. I mean, students come to universities from from all over the country, sometimes from different parts of the world, and they need some place to live. And so the fact that um, there there just didn't seem to be like a plan in place just really seems inexcusable here. But I mean, what I mean, what do you think has behind the response of the university to all of this up until this point, you think? Yes. And this is something I also would like to point out. Um, 
with the, the board of trustees, there um, back in the summer was an announcement that they were moving removing affiliate positions for students, faculty, and alumni. And it was a very rushed decision, and there wasn't really a lot of thought done into how they would reach to the broader Howard community if they were removing those positions. In my opinion, it is detrimental to Howard University's community to to remove those positions because you have blinders as a board member to what is going on with students, faculty, and alumni when it comes to Howard University. And we're seeing that play out in real time with all of the issues that Howard is dealing with in real time right now. Since the decision with, I think, some pressure from students, faculty, and alumni, uh, the board has decided to allow positions on the committee level, which is not the same thing as complete shared governance. So that's another thing that we are, um, are asking for and demanding of the board now. Now, when, to your point about preparedness, um, that's a lot of things students would like to know as well. There seems to be a lot of things right now that had there been a plan in place and people sticking to and making sure that people were adhering to this plan, there would be a lot of things that would be um, different right now or better right now. Um, students were required to you know, be fully vaccinated for most students before they you know, hit the dorms and before people even came to campus. But um, we're seeing now that that's not the case. There's a lot of faculty members that are not vaccinated yet as well, and they were needing the time to get vaccinated. And um, there have been some COVID protocols put in place, but there hasn't been enough. And also, a lot of students are unclear with what those, pro- those um, COVID protocols are beyond, you know, mask mandates on campus. Um, I think that's pretty much a lot of what students know, which is, oh, I just need a mask on campus. A lot of students don't really know beyond that what the other protocols are. Mm. And I'm wondering, is the administration, is the school providing access to vaccines for the students and masks if they have imposed a mask mandate, you know, providing the materials for the students to adhere to whatever mandates they have? I will say that Howard, um, during the summer, did a, a good job of vaccinating the broader uh, D.C. community. As far as students with uh, and vaccinations for students, um, most students were required to get vaccinated before Howard even, you know, opened its doors to students. So as of right now, it's kind of unclear. There's been like um, COVID testing pop-ups um, for students. And I know there are places on campus where they can go get vaccinated or if not get vaccinated on campus, there are places where um, Howard will tell them to go get vaccinated. But that also means that there has to be um, a schedule as far as like when students can go to the health center or when students can go um, talk to healthcare professionals on campus to figure out what that protocol is. I think students are unclear with how that works as well. Yeah. And I'm also wondering at this point, Erica, what are, you know, the conversations that students are having around organizing around this issue at the university? I mean, 
What are the demands? Do you all have ideas about what the next steps are? You know, what do you see as sort of a how do you all move forward to try to continue to apply pressure on the university to really come up with a solution for you all? So students are talking. Um, I think, and, it's, and it goes beyond just um, COVID and housing. Um, there, there are a lot of issues at Howard that students are trying to figure out how to navigate because they don't have um, clear direction on what it is they're supposed to do. I've, I've heard reports of, um, you know, issues in dorms currently that um, that are st- students are living through. Um, there are students that are dealing with issues with even administration um, as far as like issues like the mail room. Um, trying to get packages. I remember hearing a student who um, needs access to medication, but the mailroom is so backed up that she hasn't been able to receive her medication um, that was mailed to her. There's been issues um, surrounding um, health insurance going up this year and then tuition going up this year. It it seemed very, um, especially um, among COVID, it seemed very frustrating to have health insurance more than double this year when a lot of people are trying to be so health conscious. And there really hasn't been an explanation as to why um, health insurance has more than doubled or why tuition has gone up when a lot of students were struggling to pay just the current tuition, the previous amount for tuition. Um, So students are talking and students are organizing and we're wanting the support of Howard University to work with us so that we can all, you know, take care of this place that we love so much. Definitely. And I mean, it it makes sense that, you know, there are other sort of uh, long running systemic issues that seemingly have been exacerbated by the pandemic. And so I'm so glad that you and the other students are organizing around this. But we're going to leave it there for now here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. want to thank you, Erica, so much for joining us today. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, September 2nd, 2021. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call, Liberty, by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on this show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's you, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. They can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But they can also hit us up on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at BAM Necessary. Then our shows can be downloaded on iTunes, where we would very much appreciate a good rating from you. They can hear us on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, and lots of other podcast platforms. 
They can listen to us live on SputnikNews.com and their radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do when we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Dan Kavalik, author of No More War, How the West Violates International Law by Using Humanitarian Intervention to Advance Economic and Strategic Interests. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Dan, the East Coast of the United States has been positively smacked by the remnants of Hurricane Ida. I mean, there are reports of at least 22 dead up in the areas of New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and elsewhere in the region. I mean, it basically paralyzed the subway system of New York City with people being advised to only engage in travel if it's a emergency. I'm sure people have been seeing the videos and all of that of water just pouring into uh, the New York subway station. Um, I saw some uh, videos of people, you know, walking through their their building where they live, you know, uh, almost waist high of this uh, dark gray, disgusting uh, water. And also reportedly power was knocked out for more than 200,000 customers in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Pennsylvania. And this even came to the D.C. area as well. I mean, there was flooding in Rockville, not that far from uh, Washington, D.C. proper. Uh, There was also a tornado in Annapolis, Maryland, which is not terribly common to say the very least. And President Joe Biden has uh, said that he will be furnishing aid to address these issues, saying in a a briefing on uh, what the response will be to Ida, he said, quote, My message to everyone effective is we're all in this together. The nation is here to help. That's the message I've been making clear to the mayors, governors, energy and utility leaders in the region. And so what I think this shows, Dan, is that the intensifying impacts of climate change will not only impact one part of the country. It won't just impact the South. It won't just impact the Gulf Coast, not that we should be okay with it, you know, tearing stuff up down there either. But to me, it's just clear that climate catastrophe, right, under the capitalist system is unsolvable completely. And why? Because to make the changes that are necessary to mitigate the impacts of climate change, you know, ending fossil fuels really strengthening infrastructure to the extent that it requires, and all these other things, all these sorts of things go against the interests of capital and therefore cannot be tolerated by the ruling class who profit from this. And so if that puts the masses of the rest of us in danger, then so be it, is the attitude of this system. You know what I mean? And so it's just the fact that this capitalist system is just not viable if we want humanity to remain on the earth, I think is becoming uh, uh, painfully clear. And I think that if something drastic doesn't begin to happen sometime soon, if there isn't some sort of real change, then I think we can only expect these things to get not only worse, but much worse. Yeah, well, I agree with you. Um, And what we see, I think, 
you know, if we analyze it, you know, in terms of class struggle, you know, a hundred years ago, um, the richest of the rich, they would still, they lived amongst us, right? They would live in our neighborhoods or close to them and they had to use our roads, right? Because they would travel by automobile like the rest of us and um, they needed good airports because they would travel commercial flights, etc. The point is the super wealthy now do not walk amongst us, right? They are now going into space. They now have these floating homes. In fact, you know, we saw stories during the height of COVID of, of, of rich people uh, circling Manhattan on their yachts until the pandemic passed. Other people building, you know, uh, homes 20 feet underground. The point is the ruling class doesn't care that our infrastructure is falling apart because they don't need it. They don't use it. And so, you know, we've known for years, for example, that New York City needed some type of dam system like the Dutch have to protect Manhattan from what we've seen, to protect it from flooding, to protect the subways from being flooded. And that has never happened, right? We're not, it hasn't even been fully studied, that type of system. Um we will not see infrastructure changes or improvements um, because, again, the ruling class doesn't need those things anymore. They have their own ways of getting around and surviving the impact of this. The only way this is going to change is, I mean, frankly, through, through revolutionary processes that wrench the wealth away from these people. Yeah, I think that's definitely true, Dan, especially when, you know, now we are seeing and and it's not the first time we're seeing in in New York City, 22 dead because of the floods. Among those dead, a toddler and out of 10 people from those dead, eight of the 10 people lived in basement apartments. You know, Amtrak has had to suspend service to Boston because of the flooding. Obviously, transit systems are impacted. I'm wondering, Dan, how you are seeing the ability to organize and mobilize the people affected by this to, you know, push politicians to have this revolution uh, and to stop voting for politicians who end up being like the ones that are in office now. They say nice progressive things. Well, even in in Joe Biden's case, he didn't say nice progressive things, right? Let's not forget that he made it clear that he was not going to do much of progressive anything. But people felt like they had to vote for him because he wasn't Trump. And here we are under a Biden administration, and he's saying things like we're all in this together when clearly, clearly we are not all in this together. So how do you see us being able to organize the folks who are the most impacted by these climate change realities, you know, at the same time that they're having to survive, eat, keep a roof over their heads and literally survive? Well, obviously, that is the 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 sixty four thousand dollar question, because, I mean, first of all, we have to try to do that. I mean, uh, and I'm not being facetious in saying that. I mean, I think the poor and working class have largely been forgotten by the left in this country. And I think the left needs to refocus on those folks, the folks that are being left 
behind, the folks who do live in basement apartments in New York City. Those are not the people, by and large, that the left is trying to organize. And we need to organize those people. Those people are the backbone of this country, and they are the ones suffering disproportionately the economic uh, disparities in this in this country and uh, and the pandemic and um, global warming. So I think really the answer is we need to, to try and, and we need to focus on those people. You know, we can talk about Louisiana, uh, which had the brunt of the hurricane and the fact that people, you know, who did not leave New Orleans didn't leave because they couldn't. They didn't have cars. They didn't have the ability to leave. And that was true during Katrina. You know, there's countries like China and Cuba where the government actually comes in and helps people leave, right? Um, We don't do that here. We leave people to their own devices. And we need to organize in a way that changes that. Yeah, and you know, Cuba's been coming up a lot in our conversations about Hurricane Ida, Dan. And I think rightfully so. Because you're talking about a a little island nation, not that far from the United States, uh, way more poor than the U.S., under attack by the U.S. through a economic blockade that's been in place for over half a century, not to mention the fact that uh, the U.S. has been attacking Cuban uh, sovereignty for a couple of centuries once you really get into the history of it. Because, I mean, the U.S. for a long time wanted to uh, uh, properly make Cuba a colony of the U.S. But uh, even be that as it may, the fact that they have a centralized, organized, socialist, humanity centered approach to disaster relief is why they suffer so few casualties during these hurricanes and during these natural disasters, even though they have far less resources than these other developed countries, including the United States, which is the wealthiest nation in the history of nations, but yet floodwaters are filling the train stations in New York and filling people's houses and all these sorts of things. And so it, it, it really is a tale of two systems, right? And this is why, you know, those of us here in the United States, and I'd argue in the West in general, have to continue to be fed lies about socialism and how it manifests, not just in Cuba, but in China and in Venezuela and in Nicaragua and in these other uh, uh, socialist countries on earth. We have to be lied to about what the concept even is, what the system even is and how it operates. And we certainly have to be fed lies about socialist and communist governments and make them seem like the worst, most bloodthirsty, despotic people in the world. Because for people in the United States to look fondly upon the concept of socialism is a real threat to the ruling class, to that wealthy elite that profits from our suffering in so many ways. And I feel like I have to say, I never even heard of a floating home before you mentioned it a little earlier, Dan. I looked it up, and this is pretty wild. I mean, literally, some of these homes are like in the middle of like a lake or something, and some of them have like a basement part that's actually underwater. Pretty wild. I mean, clearly something that only the the very wealthy could actually afford. And, you know, should everything fall down, you know, these things would still be standing. And, you know, and that's to your point, just like with the evacuation of Louisiana, because you're right, Dan, 
people who could afford to leave could. And of course, why wouldn't they? But that wasn't most people. And so what they were told by their local and state government was basically to just, you know, batten down the hatches and to ride it out, you know? But see, socialist countries like Cuba, these other socialist countries, they don't just say, hey, man, nothing I can do. Do, do what you got to do. Do your best, I guess. And we'll get to you when we can, if we can, I guess. Right. You know what I mean? And so it's just a complete lack of planning. This is the anarchy of the capitalist system in that way. For profits to be maximized, all these other things just kind of have to be left to chance and be handled all willy-nilly, right? It can't really be considered because that would impact the bottom line. And so it's not a coincidence, I think, then. It's not surprising that over the last few years, as socialism begins to grow in popularity here in the United States, and I remember a time when that wasn't the case. I'm sure you, Dan and Jackie, remember that as well, when things were particularly hostile towards socialism in this country not that long ago. That's why we see these ruling class politicians, both Democrats and Republicans, make it a point to speak out against socialism, right? And so we know that, you know, anti-socialism, anti-communist is so deep in the United States that it almost rises to the level of an unofficial religion. And why? Because this ruling class knows that if socialist ideas, socialist politics, and a socialist program, if those things were ever to be made popular or able to be grasped or broadcast, to the millions of poor working and oppressed people in this country, that would be a serious threat to their power and to their pockets. And so we have to take note of this, I think, Dan, as movement people and begin to ask ourselves some serious questions about, well, how do we organize to continue to popularize these concepts amongst the American people who've been so deeply conditioned to oppose it, even if they can't define it, right? There's a lot of folks who can't even rightly define capitalism, let alone socialism, but it doesn't matter. All you got to know is it's bad, right? And so, you know, in the final analysis, Dan, it just seems that we really do have to begin to seriously put energy into the kind of organizing, the kind of analysis, the kind of study, and the kind of application of theory that can really set in motion the kind of movement that is needed to bring about the revolutionary transformation that is needed here in the United States. Yeah, well, I, I could not agree with you more. I mean, um, we need to grasp the fact that the world, if it continues the way it is, is dying, or at least humanity is dying. And the ruling class has decided instead of saving humanity, which they could with all the resources they've had, they've decided to abandon us and abandon the world, at least as we know it. Again, maybe for space, maybe for the oceans, um, maybe in, you know, um, domed cities. But the point is they've decided they're not going to take most of us with us, with them. And so I think once you convince people that that's the case, and again, I think in this year where we saw Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson and Elon Musk go into space, it's pretty easy to see where these people's heads are at. And they're not with us. They're with escaping. 
And I think if you clue people into that and say, look, we need to really take back the resources these people have stolen in order to make this world livable, I think most people will understand that and be very amenable to to social change. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary, your radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukman continue to be joined by Dan Kavalik. And, you know, Dan, we're having this conversation just a couple of days after the official pulling out of the U.S. military of Afghanistan ordered by the Joe Biden, Kamala Harris administration. And, you know, I know that um, not that long ago you were actually in Syria and we even uh, spoke with you a little while ago when while you were there following the last election in Syria. That's all the re-election of uh, President Bashar al-Assad. And uh, I'm just wondering, you know, based on not only your recent travels, but really your your years of sort of being an anti-imperialist uh, organizer and activist and writing and being involved in these sorts of things, is how do you sort of situate the United States pull out of Afghanistan, not only within the history of what it's done in that country, but what it's done up until this very day in countries like Syria and uh, Lebanon and, and, and Libya and, and countries like this. You know what I mean? Because one thing about imperialism is it is excruciatingly consistent. It almost always operates in the same way to achieve the same ends. And it has the force and resources to do so. You know what I mean? And so, you know, and particularly looking at a regional aspect and just sort of considering what Washington is after in the Middle East in general, just how do you see the Afghanistan question within the context of uh, some of these other countries? Yeah, well, I think if we look at at the major conflicts the U.S. has been involved in since World War II, and that would include Korea, Vietnam, the two Iraq invasions, Afghanistan, and then Libya, of course, Syria, Yugoslavia. We see the same results in all of those theaters, and that is almost total devastation of those countries, right? Um, And so one has to conclude that the goal of U.S. intervention is, in fact, to destroy independent states, not to create democracy, not even, frankly, to put in a strong man in power. but to actually create chaos in which the U.S. can then freely plunder a country's resources. And I think that seems to be the goal. Again, if we look at the results of all of these interventions 
you know, which cross party lines, Republican presidents have, have led some, Democrats have led some. Um, that seems to be ultimately the goal. And meanwhile, the other goal seems to be to have war itself, regardless of the outcome. You know, there's that George Orwell line from 1984 that the wars were not meant to be won. They were meant to continue forever. And why? Because U.S. private companies have made literally trillions of dollars off these wars. And so whether we leave Afghanistan with our tail between our legs, with the Taliban in power, even though 20 years ago we defeated the Taliban, in the end Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and Boeing and these other private companies – their bottom line has been improved greatly. Their shareholders' bottom line has improved greatly. And it seems that that is as much the goal of these wars as anything else. Definitely. We've got a few callers on the line here. First up is James. Tell us what's on your mind. Hi. Hi, Sean. Hi, Jackie. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I'm just calling you to ring the alarm bells. Uh, I'm out here in uh, Washington County, Arkansas. And it was recently revealed last week that our Washington County Sheriff uh, is allowing the medical provider in the jails, that's Dr. Kara, to provide treatment uh, for inmates suffering with COVID-19 with this cattle deworming drug. And uh, I just, I know it's a very popular thing out here uh, among private citizens, people who are on the outside. Uh, that's one thing, but you know, y'all know better than me. Uh, the context of being in prison, you are uh, deprived of your rights every moment of every day. And so therefore, there is not a context to choose your medical care that you're being provided with and uh, to be treated with this cattle deworming drug uh, for your COVID-19 symptoms. It's just, it's very alarming. You know, you can tell that I'm shaken by it. Um and I'm just worried. And, you know, this can't be the only place this is happening. Again, that's Washington County, Arkansas. Thank you for taking my call. Well, thank you, James. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. I mean, I'm not even sure what to say. That That's pretty terrifying. I mean, I was uh, I was talking with a friend of mine who lives out in California because I'd been seeing, like I'm sure a lot of you did, the pictures and whatnot of like the signs and like pet stores and animal, you know, feed stores and stuff. Um, telling people that, you know, they can't, you know, just buy up all the ivermectin and, and all these sorts of things. Well, she said that she actually, you know, saw a, a, a sign like that in person. So, I mean, this is, you know, a, a real issue here in the U.S. And I've not heard of it being used on uh, other prisoners, but I'd definitely be curious to know if it is, in fact, happening in other parts and it's not being reported yet. So I appreciate you putting us onto that. And uh, we'll definitely keep an eye on it. I mean, Jackie, I don't know if you had anything to add to that. That's just, you know, it just speaks to, I think, the way people are dehumanized in mm. the prison system. They're, they're right. not, they, they don't, they're, <laughs> this idea that we have choice under capitalism uh, it's, itself is is a lie, you know, because if you're poor and you're not in prison, you, you don't have a lot of choices. But when, if you are in prison, then you have no choice. You have no say, no control over your body. These people are being used as guinea pigs, literally being because this this is an 
This is nothing more than another one of those, you know, medical experiments. Animal-grade ivermectin is a parasite medicine. Human-grade ivermectin is a parasite medicine. It, it's not going to treat COVID anything because COVID is not a parasite. And any medical professional knows this, but if they would give any form of ivermectin to people who are incarcerated, who can't even get treatment for medical issues that they have like hepatitis, like high blood pressure, like cancer, but all of a sudden they're just going to toss ivermectin. Yeah, this sounds like another one of those messed up uh, human experiments to me that can only be done on a captive group of people who are behind the walls that most folks don't care about because they don't see them out of sight and and out of mind. And I really appreciate the caller bringing that to light because now, yeah, we absolutely are curious to find out if this is happening elsewhere. And we have another caller on the line here. Wesley, tell us what's on your mind. Yeah, you guys were uh, talking about climate change and capitalism earlier. I live in California and I think uh, one of the one of the great examples is PG&E out here. Um, a couple years ago, we had really bad fires up near Chico and Paradise. People were literally burned to death. And what it was is PG&E wasn't keeping maintenance on their, you know, uh, I'm not an electrician, but basically their boxes and stuff. So they were sparking, catching fires. Meanwhile, you know, none of the you know, leaders of the company or anything like that were held for any justice for the people that literally died because they didn't keep maintenance on their, you know, property that gives electricity. And then, you know, I look at, for example, we're having an extreme drought in California. I live in Sacramento, uh, one of the rich suburbs near Sacramento, Folsom. You can go up there and the yards are rush and green. There's fountains, you know, that it, you would know we're in a drought. But you come to my areas, you know, People are getting fined for using, you know, water and stuff, which I understand kind of. But when you're rich, what's a fine? Okay, I'll just pay that and break the law anyways. Right. You know? And then, uh, you know, another thing is uh, with the PG&E thing, a lot of people made money when they killed people because their stocks dropped to $6. People bought in and they went back up to 24 And I just think, you know, here we live in a system where a company can basically not do what they're supposed to do, kill people because of it, and then make more money because they did that. So, you know, it's just disgusting. Definitely. I mean, uh, Dan Kavalik, a lot there with our two callers there. Uh, uh, Feel free to pull from any of it. Yeah, well, no, I agree. I think what we're seeing in both the cases that the callers uh, mentioned is that, well, in the case of the prisoners being given these horse dewormers, I think the point there is that people in prison have no control over their own bodies, which is uh, very troubling, especially since the U.S. has more prisoners uh, per capita and in absolute numbers than any country on earth, which we have to remember. And meanwhile, in Texas, you see that women essentially have been you know, to, uh, um, stripped of their right to an abortion, and the Supreme Court has just ratified that. You know, so you see more and more the ability of people to have control over their own bodies is being taken away and very quietly. Right. There's very little protest that's being made 
uh, over these things. And then meanwhile, yes, out west, you have these fires that are clearly the result of global climate change, which itself is being propelled by corporate greed and by the U.S. military, which creates more CO2 than any single institution uh, in the world. Um, And as the caller mentioned, you have uh, many uh, of the uh, the incidents causing, you know, the, the fires are the result of, again, greed by electric companies, by um, the rich who are hoarding water uh, in these areas. And so, look, it all boils down to, again, the fact that a few people who own everything in this country are dictating how we live or whether we live at all. And, and, And that is quite troubling. Definitely. We have another caller on the line here. Baltimore Charles, tell us what's on your mind. Hey, uh, uh, guys, how are you today? Good. Oh, great, great, great. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, listen, um, uh, sh- this is uh, shocking uh, news about the uh, animal dewormer de- and, uh, and other com- uh, items being used. But it doesn't really surprise me because of the Tuskegee. Um, institute, I mean, because that's uh, experiment on, um, you know, blacks uh, and the syphilis uh, uh, program, uh, you know, uh, back uh, uh, when, it, when, it, when it happened. And, um, you know, without even telling the individuals uh, what they were going through, but uh, uh, this is part of the, uh, what they call the uh, military industrial complex uh, to make cannon fodder out of our uh, citizens uh, regardless. I wanted to uh, touch upon another point, if you could, if I could, on Afghanistan. Uh, I, I heard your program and what you, what you guys were saying, and you were saying there was great concern about the women and the children and uh, uh, being raped and um, being exploited by the uh, the Taliban uh, uh, tribals uh, uh, bureaucracy up there or whatever you call them. Uh, But uh, isn't this exactly what the founding fathers did with the slaves when they brought them over to this country? Uh, Didn't they uh, sexually abuse and rape the women and uh, uh, and also uh, produce uh, children uh, from the slaves uh, to uh, further the uh, capitalism and the uh, to enhance their their pockets and things of that nature, uh, you know, uh, Frederick Douglass was uh, his father was a white man, his first slave owner, uh, but that didn't save him. Uh, uh, you know, uh, his father would slip into the uh, cabin uh, and uh, take advantage of the uh, women during the the, uh, the uh, dead of the night and. Because they he produced Frederick Douglass, but they took him up to Mount, Mount Misery up in St. Michael's, Maryland, and tried to break him. Uh, they took him to the slave breaking uh, facility up there to to break him. And uh, 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 Donald Rumsfeld bought that facility uh, recently in the 70s and so forth, and uh, without even blinking an eye. So again, uh, it shows you the nature and the temperament of the people with whom we have to deal, according to John Henry Clark, the great historian. Thanks for taking my call. 
Well, thank you, Charles. And and I mean, yeah, it's true that, you know, we see similar issues in terms of, I mean, the sexual exploitation. But I mean, you know, it's a natural outgrowth because, I mean, the United States, it's a settler colonial state. And that extends to when it tries to expand its empire um, across the globe, you'll see similar things. I mean, and it's not just in Afghanistan. And so to me, that just adds another layer of just how cynical and, um, and and hypocritical all of a sudden everybody cares about, you know, Afghan women and girls as if U.S. occupation made it like, you know, a, a paradise of women's liberation. I mean, this is just ridiculous. You know what I mean? And, you know, Dan, speaking of Afghanistan, we, we were talking earlier in the show about how the corporate owned media propagates these you know, uh, militaristic narratives, these things used to justify U.S. occupation and, and, and the war state and things like that. And I was looking at this opinion piece, this editorial in the Washington Post by this cat, Charles Lane, and uh, this from a couple of days ago. And the title of this is, quote, almost 80 years after the U.S. pulled out of Nicaragua, we aren't quite done. And so, like, using the example of Afghanistan and basically saying, well, the U.S. should have never left Afghanistan, just like we should have never left Nicaragua. And so I think this is noteworthy, particularly as it's just pretty clear that Nicaragua is once again going to be even more squarely within the crosshairs of U.S. imperialism as we move towards their upcoming Elections. I don't think this is out of left field at all. And, uh, you know, we already know that there's, you know, sanctions and has been against the Nicaragua and the Sandinista government for some time. We know about the U.S. and the National Endowment for Democracy and these other uh, NGO and quote unquote uh, uh, civil society groups trying to carry out regime change and, and all these sorts of things. And so, you know, Dan, whether we're talking about the Middle East or West Asia or Latin America, or even if we're talking about whether the country is socialist or not, because, you know, you don't have to be a socialist country for the United States to attack you. I mean, certainly it helps, but you don't have to be that. Right. And we just see that this pattern continues. And so having this kind of international perspective seems important because when we see these patterns playing out in Nicaragua, in Afghanistan, in China, in Cuba, in Iran, the DPRK, and all these other places across the globe, I think it helps us see that ultimately it's the same system, the same imperialism that's producing this same pattern. And it must be resisted vigorously both to affirm and protect the humanity of those people in those countries and definitely to protect our own. Yeah, well, and and it's a completely ahistorical view of, of the world and of U.S. intervention. First of all, to, to even mention the, the Nicaraguan government and the Sandinistas in the same breath as the Taliban is a joke. First, let me point out that in, in recent years, three years in a row, Nicaragua under the Sandinistas, was ranked fifth in the world for gender equality. Fifth. Only after four Scandinavian countries, okay? The U.S. was like 21. So to, to, to mention Nicaragua in the same sentence as the Taliban is, is, is ridiculous. But also, when we talk about the Taliban and women's rights, 
we have to go back to the fact that it was the U.S. by supporting the Mujahideen, which was led in part by Osama bin Laden. Uh, the U.S. supported the Mujahideen to overthrow a secular socialist government in Afghanistan that was advancing women's rights, that was given, giving women the right to work and to go to school and to not have to wear, uh, you know, covering over their faces. Uh, the U.S. destroyed that. The U.S. helped bring the Taliban to power. And so to talk about the U.S. as somehow being a defender of women's rights and that we now have to intervene in Nicaragua or Afghanistan to protect women's rights is a cruel joke. And, you know, the caller who just called in was talking about rape and sexual abuse in Afghanistan by the Taliban. The U.S. military has engaged in rape and sexual abuse in every theater it's ever been in, right. including Afghanistan, including Vietnam, including Korea, frankly, even including in France after D-Day. Even General Eisenhower was alarmed by the increase in rape after the American forces entered uh, France through Normandy. You know, we have to get real. The U.S. military is not a feminist organization. It's not a human rights organization. And it is not liberating anyone, including women, from oppression. Yeah, I, I like that you made that point that the U.S. military isn't liberating anyone from oppression, especially since, you know, there are women serving in combat roles now. So, I mean, I, I guess I've been on this kind of kick today pointing out that. Look, women are just as responsible for upholding patriarchy in some cases as they are in upholding and carrying out anti-humanitarian imperialist atrocities around the world. They may not participate in rape, but they belong to the organization that perpetuates the rape of people and of countries and resources around the world. Why? For profit and imperialism. Right, definitely. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. To by any means necessary, join Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukman is here. Dan Kavalik is here. And Dan, you know, swinging back to the Middle East here uh, for a moment, I mean, just yesterday, a delegation of four U.S. senators said that the United States is more than happy to help Lebanon overcome its uh, fuel shortages. That's been a serious problem in that country as of late. But they said that if they import Iranian oil into Lebanon, then that could have, quote, severely damaging Consequences. These were all uh, Democratic senators, mind you, although we know that Democrats and Republicans are generally in lockstep when it comes to foreign policy 
issues uh, and all these sorts of things. And uh, Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut told reporters at the end of the visit, quote, it is inexcusable that in the middle of this life threatening crisis, the political leaders in Lebanon have refused to make the tough choices in order to form a government. And, you know, I'm just curious, Dan, some of your top line thoughts about the U.S. government basically hinting that if Lebanon wants some oil, then they have to sort of end uh, their relationship with Iran. I mean, uh, what do you make of this? Because it just sort of seems like a situation of the U.S. and sort of its ongoing campaign to um, attack Iran, which continues to refuse to kowtow to the whims of the United States government's by just sort of trying to do an end run and maybe playing both sides against the middle and trying to, you know, cut off the relationships with countries like Lebanon that Iran has had established for some time. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. is putting Lebanon in an impossible position. First of all, I was, I just got back from Lebanon last week, and they now have two to three hours of electricity a day. There is no gasoline to fuel people's cars. It is a, a very desperate situation there, and it is desperate largely because of U.S. sanctions on that country. So the U.S. is strangling Lebanon. Meanwhile, now that Iran has a tanker and route to Lebanon with fuel, the U.S. is saying, well, if you accept that fuel, then we won't help you. But they're not helping them to begin with. In fact, they're preventing them from getting fuel. So what are they supposed to do with that? The U.S. Has, has, has pushed them towards Iran, and now they're saying, well, don't, you know, accept their help. Lebanon has no choice but to accept help from, from Iran at this point. Um, and the U.S. has no grounds to tell them that they shouldn't or who their friends should be because the U.S. has not been a friend to Lebanon for a long, long time. I'm wondering, though, Dan, if... This is one of those ploys by the U.S. and Western powers to push a country like Lebanon into more loans from the IMF. Because I I just I just see that the World Bank has weighed in and said that the poverty rate in Lebanon exceeds 50 percent. And I feel like the World Bank weighing in on the poverty rate in that country is a red flag to me. I understand they do these kind of statistics all the time, but. Whenever I see the World Bank weighing in on the economic woes of a country and I see the United States and Western powers involved in those economic issues, I smell a big old plot by those three entities to get that country to become more indebted to the World Bank. Well, I think that's right. And I think all of this, look, is uh, is of the same Peace, and that is, look, the West wants, is telling Lebanon, either you bend our will, and that includes to the will of the IMF and the World Bank, um, and either you abandon Iran or we are going to continue to strangle you. That's the choice that Lebanon's been given. And again, I think it's an impossible choice. Because meanwhile, Israel, which is, you know, the U.S.'s closest ally, if not client state in the region, continues to bomb Lebanon. The West continues to economically strangle Lebanon. So how can Lebanon trust that threat, mixed threat and promise? It can't. Um, so I think Lebanon's going to be stuck in a period of limbo for some time. People are going to continue 
to suffer. It also has to be pointed out that after 10 years of war in Syria, a war that the U.S. has backed against the Syrian government, there's now 3 million Syrians living in Lebanon, many on the streets of Lebanon, which, again, I witnessed when I was there. So not only does Lebanon have to deal with the sanctions by the West, but it has to deal try to absorb 3 million immigrants that it has no capability to absorb. They're getting very little help to do that. It's it's just a terrible situation for that country. Yeah, and I mean, it's just like your latest book, Dan, discussing this backwards notion of quote-unquote humanitarian intervention. I mean, there's just clearly nothing humanitarian about Washington's intentions, right? Because if their intentions were genuinely humanitarian, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't threaten a country so in need with something that they need so badly in order to further your own ends. You would just give them the resources if all you wanted was for them to have it. But that clearly isn't the case. And what the U.S. is saying to Lebanon is like, look, we know that you desperately need this resource and we're willing to give it to you if you help us um, advance our own ends, even if that may be a detriment to you. And so this is the nature of uh, a U.S. imperialism, I think, in reality, Dan. And you've told us a little bit about conditions there uh, on the ground in Lebanon. I mean, I mean, well, what was it like, really, you know, while you were there? I mean, which areas did you get to visit? And uh, I mean, just what were some of the things that you saw that were just, uh, you know, uh, perhaps illustrative uh, of the reality of what so many people are going through there right now? Yeah. So first of all, I, I was mostly in Beirut. And I was in Beirut in May, and then again, and even since May, between May and the end of August, things have gotten much, much worse. In May, people were much more upbeat. People had fuel. Um, there was electricity, right? And then meanwhile, when I get to uh, Beirut, flew into Beirut near the end of August, um, you know, we're driving into town. There's no electricity. The entire cityscape is black. There's no lights on. And, you know, you come to find that people have two to three hours of electricity a day. People are struggling to get gasoline. We saw gasoline lines that went on for at least a mile. It was incredible. And it was all throughout, not just Beirut, but the rest of, of, of Lebanon, because we also drove to Syria. So we drove a couple hours from Beirut to the Syrian border within Lebanon. Um, And then, you know, it was amazing. So when we went to Syria, uh, when we left Beirut going to Syria, the streets were bumper to bumper traffic. And then when we came back to Beirut, there was nearly no traffic. And why? Because no one had gasoline. Most of my friends there, I'd call up, hey, you want to get together? Yeah, we'd love to get together. We cannot fill our gas tanks. There's no gasoline. Meanwhile, there's no garbage pickup. So garbage is everywhere, on the sidewalks, on the streets. And there are huge numbers of homeless people, mostly Syrians, I'm told, in the streets of Beirut. I mean, it's, it's just palpable. And again, well, I stayed in the Hamra district in Beirut, which used to be like Park Avenue. This was the ritzy part of Beirut, and it was a disaster area. Again, at night, there was no electricity, very few restaurants opening, opened, you know, homeless on 
you know, couple homeless every block, mostly, by the way, women with children on the streets. It's horrifying. This used to be the Paris of the East. That's what they called it, the Paris of the East. It's on the Mediterranean. It is an otherwise beautiful city, and it has been brought to ruin. And the despair is incredible. That That is absolutely heartbreaking. And I'm wondering, Dan, because you did mention Syria. In all of this, the United States is acting as if it's scaling back its footprint in in the the area that it's called the Middle East, but really not really. You know, the the U.S. Uh, has left Afghanistan, at least troops, is pulling back in Iraq, but there are still troops in Syria. The Biden administration uh, has said that the U.S. will maintain its military presence in eastern Syria to execute our sole mission in Syria, which is the enduring defeat of ISIS. In the midst of all of this despair and economic chaos, and and honestly, it just sounds like the the collapse of of Beirut that was precipitated by U.S. intervention and meddling in their economy and politics in the first place. How does the U.S. continued presence in Syria contribute to the destabilization in Beirut, in Lebanon, rather? Yeah, well, in a big way, because Syria used to be Lebanon's biggest trading partner. And Lebanon got most of its fuel and other products from Syria. Well, after 10 years of war in Syria and after the U.S. sanctions and and, and in the face of the U.S. continuing to occupy one-third of Syria, and it happens to be the most oil-rich and wheat-rich part of Syria, Syria has no ability to help Lebanon anymore. And that's a huge contributing factor to what's happening in that country. Um, Meanwhile, Syria itself is now down to two or three hours of electricity a day because they can't even access their own fuel that the U.S. is sitting on right now. And Syria is having trouble feeding itself uh, and getting gasoline to people. So it's this cascading problem. and. It is all largely the result of U.S. intervention in this region. Yeah, you know, and I'm glad that we have people like you, Dan, who are able to go to these places and able to report back what's really happening. And and what you tell us from what you've seen, it just bears no resemblance to what we hear here in the United States, particularly from the corporate owned media and even from some uh, so-called Progressives. I mean, sure, they may talk about suffering in, uh, say, Syria, but they completely leave out the impact of U.S. sanctions and uh, intervention in general. And they may even uphold, you know, uh, the so-called moderate rebels or groups like the uh, so-called Free Syrian Army, which are just pre, you know, uh, repackaged extremist groups. You know what I mean? And so it's just a deep confusion that overtakes the American people because we're fed these imperialist distortions and outright lies that is called news on a 24-hour basis using the platforms of some of the world's most wealthiest people. But what I want people to understand more than anything is that all these international struggles that we're talking about are directly connected to the struggles that we're experiencing right here in the United States because it is the same system. 
because that imperialism that impacts people abroad is simply the highest expression of the capitalism that is the dominant economic force here in the United States. And it's a, a bottomless pit. It, it just wants to expand and, and gobble up more land and more people and more resources, causing more depth, more pain, more destruction, more displacement, and all of that. And as such, we have to fight that system together so that we can be free of the ravages of this system once and for all. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. want to thank Dan Kavalik so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.